You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we're talking about child care during COVID-19 times. We have early education providers and advocates joining us. Uh, this morning, we have Megan McCorston. She is the chief executive officer of Seagull Schools, one of the first preschools to close during this pandemic and one of the first providers to reopen. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. Aloha. Thanks for having me. So glad you can join us. We also have Shauna DeLima Suganuma. She's with Patch Hawaii, which stands for People Attentive to Children. The organization offers a child care referral service, and she works as a coordinator for the east side of the Big Island. Good morning, Shauna. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for uh, sharing the perspective of the neighbor islands. <laughs> and uh, also joining us today is Kathleen Algar from the Hawaii Children's Action Network, a nonprofit which advocates for health, safety, and the education of our children. Good morning, Kathleen. Good morning. Thanks for having us all on. Uh, well, I think it's a very important topic. Uh, you know, I had uh, two young <laughs> children. They're all grown now, but I remember those times and, and what a struggle it was. And I just can't imagine what it's like or what it would be like now as a parent of, a, of you know, young children in preschool. And, and maybe, Megan, if we could start with you, since, you know, Seagull Schools, what, one of the first um, facilities to close their doors when we had the shutdown last well, a year ago. Sure. Um, this was a very difficult decision for our organization, as you can imagine. Um, we um, make 50 years in Hawaii this year, so we have never in our long history here in Hawaii ever had this issue. And just in anticipation of what was happening around the world in our country at that time, if you can remember, just one year ago in March of last year, um, things were closing elsewhere. Lockdowns were happening elsewhere in the country and in the world but not yet in Hawaii. So in anticipation of this, we did close our doors uh, in late March and then reopened eight weeks later in May. What was um, the reaction from... It was difficult. Uh, people didn't understand it at the time because, like I said, there was no precedent for this in Hawaii. Uh, certain businesses in Hawaii were just beginning to, to close. Um, not many schools, though, yet. So we were just so, so concerned about the safety and security of our community that we just decided to do this in a preemptive move. And soon thereafter, as we all know now, there was a lockdown statewide. So, And how soon did your schools reopen? Uh, we reopened within about eight weeks. Wow. Um, so, yeah, we worked really hard during the period of closure while we offered distance learning free of charge to our families, which was a definitely a learning curve for all of us because we're not really in the business of distance learning. But we worked really hard to reopen again in May just to bring students back for that in-person learning, which we found you know, so essential and so important, especially as a lot of families look to go back to work also. So you've been, um, uh, gosh, just uh, pretty steady then. Yeah, so we, you know, we've almost made a year now of in-person learning. In May, it'll be a full year, and it's hard to believe because it's just gone by so quickly. Um, and families were kind of slow to trickle in. Um, you know, certainly we had very low enrollments at the beginning for several months throughout the pandemic, which was a huge impact. Uh, like it was for most businesses. Um, and that was something that we struggled with because how do you plan for a year ahead not knowing which direction the pandemic is gonna take you in, um, how it's gonna affect your enrollment, how it's gonna affect families and their ability to return to work. So um, a lot of unknowns as we planned for this past year that we experienced and I'm really pleased to say that whereas we're normally enrolled at around 1,000 students at five centers, uh, we have a approximately 700 students back uh, 
for in-person learning right now and, and several more that plan to come back soon. So we're really pleased about that. And Shauna, what's the situation there on the Big Island with all the uh, child care providers? Because I, I, you know, was looking at some uh, survey results uh, that were put out by the Department of Human Services, and you know, they were saying in November, one in four child care providers, you know, remain closed. So what, what's the snapshot for Hawaii? So Big Island specifically, um, majority of the providers did not close during the pandemic. There was a short period from that last um, March when spring break happened and everyone thought they'd be going back a week after spring break, but then everybody kind of played it by ear and trying to figure out when to reopen. But for the most part, almost all of our schools reopened by um, the first week of May, uh, not May, sorry, first week of April after spring break. But uh, family child care is, um, Almost all of them remained open the entire time and did not close during that period. And so can you tell us, I mean, uh, is everybody operating um, compared to a year ago? Um, everyone is. We have had some closures, and it doesn't look like they will be reopening. But everyone who is still operating is, is open, Aside from those preschools that are attached to larger schools, some of those are still on distance learning, depending on where the, the um, main school, the kindergarten through 12th grade is. Some preschools are attached to those, and so they are on distance learning. But um, the single smaller schools, they're all open, and I believe all of them are in person. They aren't doing distance learning. Is there, uh, I don't know, of the ones that have shut down, are there more on one side versus the other, you know, Kona versus Hilo? Kona did have more closures than the east side did, um, but they have also reopened. Um, I believe there are one or two that were doing distance learning. I'm, I'm not sure. I would have to check with my counterpart on that side if they have opened up to in-person at this point. But... I mean, for the most part, um, everyone did stay open, if not that small period of time where we really weren't sure what was happening and we weren't sure how to move forward. And a lot of the preschools were kind of going on what the DOE was doing. And since the DOE opted to stay closed after spring break for that week after, and then it got extended to the point where preschools started to say, well, we can't stay closed forever. What do we do? And then a lot of them just started to reopen in the beginning of April. And, you know, while there are some schools that were offering the remote um, learning, it's a challenge for the little ones, right? I mean, the attention span, yeah. and they don't really get what's going on. Yes, and another challenge, too, is a lot of the families didn't have the devices available to do distance. Yeah, the so even if they had them available with their older children, you know, they really didn't have an extra iPad or an extra cell phone for their three-year-old. So it was definitely a challenge to do any form of distance learning with the little ones. And Kathleen, you folks just completed a survey. You've been probably surveying, you know, uh, providers, you know, throughout the whole year. W what's the latest? What can you share with us? Sure. So we um, we partner with Hawaii After School Alliance. We've been serving families um, since March to find out their child care needs. We're looking at child care in the continuum. So, you know, like from birth all the way up to, you know, like after school 
um, you know, age 13. And what we found is that um, a lot of older parents, so parents that had kids that were part of DOE, obviously, like, they weren't attending the after-school programs, um, uh, you know, when DOE was closed. Uh, however, there was a need for children to go someplace to do their distance learning because, uh, especially children who were whose parents are essential workers who were working, you know, like at, at the hospitals, um, at clinics, you know, firefighters, police, um, they were not able to stay home with them, especially in the beginning. So um, we saw, you know, some of our um, community organizations like YMCA and Kamaiana Kids, you know, open up these like distance learning centers for, for kids to go because they still they needed that um, they needed to have that guidance during the school day while their parents worked and then. For our younger kids, for our kids that we think of as, you know, like attending the more traditional, you know, early care learning program, um, we actually, you know, we saw some, you know, um, to Megan's point, uh, you know, some some close and then reopened, and um, we have seen that most have stayed with the providers that they were with before, um, and if they aren't, if they did not return to care, whether they were, you know, our littlest or our uh, school-aged children. The primary reasons were health and safety concerns, so parents not feeling comfortable sending their child, maybe their child has increased risk, maybe the household does, um, and costs. And so, um, you, know, uh, you know, with the way that Hawaii's economy has been impacted by the pandemic with job loss and unemployment, you know, being the highest in the nation, um, the ability for families to afford care um, was really impacted by, you know, like the, the lost wages and the lost jobs. Um, and so we actually saw some really great work by the Department of Human Services that um, applied for and got a, a waiver from the federal administration to allow for, um, you know, like families who previously weren't eligible for child care subsidies to be able to apply. Um, and I think that they were overwhelmed with the number of families applying for child care assistance in a way that they had not experienced before. Oh, yes, because child care is expensive. And, you know, with wages the way they are, I mean, it takes a big chunk out of, um, you know, your paycheck to to take care of the little ones. Absolutely. And our, you know, especially, you know, our little ones, our infant and toddler care has been some of the most expensive care that we have. Um, and it is actually one of the reasons why, you know, with this new federal money that we are expecting through all the different aid packages that um, have been passed recently, we're hoping to see compensation and kind of like workforce development be taken on in a serious way in the state. Um, Megan can speak to how, you know, child care has always been on these razor thin margins, right? Just especially, you know, um, uh, the cost of care that we charge families does not actually represent the true cost of care of what it takes to care for a child. Um, and so, you know, just very thin, you know, profit margins, barely making it. Um, it's one of the reasons why our child care providers have the lowest earnings um, in the country when adjusted for the cost of living. Um, and so any time that we've had to see like an increase of care, uh, increase of cost of care to the parents, we know that that means some families are not going to be able to afford it anymore. And so we appreciate the work that DHS did to make sure that additional families could apply to subsidy. Um, and we are excited at the opportunity to support our child care providers and our child care workforce by hope, you know, by increasing their compensation. Um, because, you know, they really, if they, we did see some closures, um, but child care has been there throughout the pandemic for the kids and, the fam and, and families in a way that um, I think has gone, you know, kind of uh, unrecognized. And so just want to, you know, give a round of applause to Megan and Dana 
um, and Pat, you know, for all the work that they did to make sure that our children and families were supported. And will we be talking about the uh, Recovery Act and, and the funds that are available a little bit later on in the show. But if you're just joining the conversation, we're talking about child care. And we like to know how you were affected during the pandemic. Our guest today, Shauna Delima Suganuma, she's with Patch Hawaii. Uh, Morgan uh, Megan McCorston is the chief executive officer of Seagull Schools, and Kathleen Algar is from the Hawaii Children's Action Network. You can join our discussion by calling 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. You know, we did happen to talk to a mother of a preschooler and a kindergartner who are both back in class. Uh, Julie Morikawa shared with us that, yeah, distance learning was a, a a little tricky with the little one, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, as she was talking with some of her friends who have young children, you know, they were going back and forth about uh, what was best to do. Here's what she had to say. I was on the side of the fence where I was okay with, with my daughter returning pretty immediately once schools were allowed to be reopened, deemed essential. Uh, but we have a lot of different friends that have differing opinions and many that have chosen to homeschool permanently and to not go back at all. So I think that the challenge amongst all of us and in our discussions is do you let them go back? Do you not? What's the positives? What's the benefits? And what's the, you know, some of those negatives that, that come with it? And so I think that's more of our discussion. And, and we have many different solutions amongst everyone's not everyone has gone back. You know, and, and not everybody, you know, has family here in Hawaii that maybe they can, uh, you know, rely on Tutu to help um, with some of the distance learning uh, because a lot of families work. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, who wants to jump in here? Uh, Megan? Sure, thanks. So, you know, we, you know, our staff worked really hard um, as we were planning for the next phase of the pandemic to reopen under safe conditions. And, you know, that included following the latest guidance for schools from the CDC, uh, from the Department of Health. Um, and if you can remember about a year ago, that, that information was changing quite often. So we totally overhauled our, um, you know, policies and protocols at the front gates for drop-offs and pickups, and followed a new set of licensing rules so that we could operate safely. Um, and keep low numbers of students in small groups um, with the same staff members throughout the day, for example. And so we did um, our best to communicate that effort to our families so that they felt safe to return to our programs um, and to even advertise that for potential new families that were interested in returning, uh, finding a program for their children. So um, it was a huge effort, um, but you know, like I said, we've been operating now for about a year. Um, with these new policies in place and operating procedures and protocols. And, you know, so far it's been working out very effectively for us. So we feel good about the work we've done and the work that we continue to do um, with less staff, I should say, and less resources, of course. Um, but we're able to do it. And so I think the, for the families that have returned to us, um, they've gotten a taste of that. They feel, you know, really good about their program. And once they see their children back in an in-person learning environment, I think there's a real sense of, wow, you know, this is um, sort of a return to a new normal that gives families some confidence that, you know, they can send their child to school safely um, as well as go back to work and, you know, not have as many concerns about safety. And safety 
the sa health and safety of our community is the number one priority for us. So that is our everyday concern, and I really commend our staff, um, you know, who haven't seen any raises, haven't seen any changes to their benefits. Um, they're working above and beyond to make sure that this is a safe learning environment for the children every day. So we're, you know, I have to give a kudos to the staff um, who are on the front lines doing this every day to ensure, and they're taking a risk too. You know, a lot of them care for their own family members at home, so they're just doing a tremendous job, and we want to thank the families too who have entrusted us with the care of their children. Um, but so far, you know, we've been, it's very gratifying to see that these children are returning to a safe learning environment. They're very happy when they come to school. And with everything else going on in the world, this just provides them with a sense of real, you know, getting back to normal. And, you know, we are seeing more and more people vaccinated, which is, you know, a good thing. Uh, you, you can uh, feel a little more relieved uh, that you've got that extra protection. Uh, Shauna, you know, what's the situation, uh, you know, with uh, patch providers? What are you hearing out there? So, Kind of to piggyback on what Megan was saying, especially in regards to health and safety, um, right at the beginning of the pandemic, if we can all remember the toilet paper rush and empty shelves everywhere. And so one of the biggest concerns with our childcare providers was that they were not able to find supplies, you know, especially with our daycares, our family childcare providers who are in their own homes with the children 10 plus hours a day they weren't able to get to the stores. And if we all remember, if you didn't go right away when the shipment came in, it was gone. So by that afternoon, there'd be nothing left. And so one of their biggest concerns was they didn't think they could stay open if they weren't able to find supplies. And so early on, Patch went out and made calls to our partners asking for donations of PPE and sanitization products, specifically bleach and gloves and other things that they would need. And then as the word got out further that we were looking for supplies, funding came down through Kamehameha Schools and they were able to provide a number of the items we were looking for and we were able to get them out to the providers so that they were able to stay open. So that was a big thing that they were expressing that they were unable to find. So they really helped a lot of them who were on the verge of closing because they just didn't have the supplies to stay open to continue operating. You know, I know when we talked to some school principals, they were doing things like uh, putting up partitions, you know, uh, in anticipation of the kids coming back in the classroom, uh, you know, and then getting all that extra hand sanitizer and uh, just getting the protocols in to, to clean. Um, uh, Kathleen, you know, wh what were you hearing? Um, so um, uh, what shared about providers having a hard time initially having a hard time finding it um, and then um, you know one of the things that came out of the cares act funding that we saw on maui uh, was they uh, maui county actually like purchased um, like sanitation and, and hygiene cleaning for providers that wanted it so that they um, understood how to uh, like you know make sure that the state the spaces were sanitized and clean um, and I think it was, you know, really successful. I think the providers got a lot out of it and they saw a lot of value in it. Um, but it was, you know, the, um, we were concerned, though, that, that childcare was kind of not being included in the way that we were talking about places that needed to have these precautions that needed to be, you know, uh, make sure that emergency appropriations, you know, like went to them. Um, and so I think that, you know, what Patch did by making sure that providers had the resources they needed, it was really important. 
Um, and it's, it's one of the reasons why when it came time for vaccinations that we wanted to make sure that child care providers and early learning um, uh, educators were included in the state's um, uh, prioritization and the same tier that K through 12 educators were. Um, what we had been seeing uh, coming out of the, the state Department of Health, uh, there was some, uh, it, it wasn't like very specific about whether or not preschool and daycare or child care, you know, early learning was going to be included in that. I think it was tier 1B. Um, and so um, the Hawaii um, Early Childhood Advocacy Alliance, um, you know, put together a sign-on letter that we shared with the governor and the Department of Health advocating that we make sure that, you know, our child care providers and our early learning educators were able to receive the vaccine at the same time as K through 12, um, especially given the consideration that, you know, um, some of our providers are family child care providers providing it in their home. And then also the staff providing care in centers, going home to care for their families. We wanted to make sure that they were able to be, you know, safe in the same way that our K through 12 um, educators are. And we're really happy and appreciative that our DOH and, and state responded in a way that was like empathetically like, yes, of course, of course they should be included. Um, and I think thus far the, the rollout for vaccines for, for that um, industry has been, has gone really well. I think we've seen, um, you know, providers being able to be vaccinated if they wanted to be um, and feeling, you know, a little bit more safe and secure. And, you know, uh, Julie, the mother of the two little ones who we talked to earlier, you know, she was really impressed with the protocols that uh, the schools rolled out. Uh, her daughter attends Unity School in Waikiki. Here's what she had to say about her daughter's adjustment. So I was so excited to be able to take her back, and the school had very effective COVID-19 policies and procedures, and they started to teach our cakey safe mask-wearing procedures all the way from that age group. So my daughter has no problems wearing double masks and a shield and wearing it all day and, and being safe while still enjoying her friends and her teachers. I, I thought that was really amazing. So she's adjusted to the double mass, even though as adults, some of us uh, have a hard time with that. Uh, but it, obviously, you know, no, every child is different. Uh, some have had more difficulty than others. Um, I don't know who wants to chime in here. What have you seen with the little ones in adjustment? This is Megan from Seagull. I'll just say that, you know, the, um, it was really exciting, even when we had very few children return to the classrooms last year um, after a brief period of closure. Um, they were so excited to be back. Um, you know, we, we know the reality of the pandemic and how it took a toll on a lot of families, so, so coming back to school was a real respite for a lot of these children. So even if they didn't see their friends, even if it wasn't you know, there, there weren't a lot of students back in the classroom. They were just so excited to see their teachers, so excited to be back in the school environment, back in their classroom, you know, back to their regular routines. And we know that that kind of structure is just really good for children. So um, since then, of course, we've now seen the numbers return to almost uh, number, normal levels of enrollment in our classrooms uh, throughout the island. And um, they, again, they continue to transition really easily. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of behavioral issues. Um, if anything, uh, the feedback from parents is that their children are doing better in school than they did prior to the pandemic, and they're actually coming home healthier. Um, they don't have as many sniffles. Um, we don't see <laughs> as many sick children, so which is kind of surprising. Um, but, uh, and that's, you know, not what we expected when we reopened. So we're really pleased about, you know, the way the children and families have transitioned. As you know, early childhood is a real family experience. So 
we really cater to the whole child and their family, you know, and trying to meet all their needs uh, right now, and, and health is number one. Um, but the provision of education and an early education and those routines is also really important. Yes, I think uh, the good hygiene is one uh, a good takeaway. I think that we're all going to have, whether you're a little one or a big one, <laughs> an adult uh Hygiene, definitely top of mind. And we have to point out that really there have been no reports of, you know, like clusters uh, in school settings. So uh, that's been pretty positive as everybody tries to work, you know, the bubbles out uh, and the adjustment with the schedules. Uh, you're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. We're sitting down with child care experts and advocates to look at how the industry is bouncing back in this pandemic. You can join our discussion by calling one 941 3689 Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for HPR comes from Christina Hom, Institutional Consultant, Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC, member SIPC, specializing in social and environmental investments, 525-6977. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, how real is the fresh start effect? This is all a mind game. And... Do self-help books work at all? One of the reasons why civilization is where we are is that we have this ability to transmit wisdom to one another and to preserve it. Are you ready for a fresh start? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the art and museum spaces on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. I'd like to uh, turn our attention now to the federal money that has become available. We did have the CARES Act. We had millions of dollars available for our families to tap into. Uh, now we have the American Rescue Plan. Uh, and Kathleen, maybe if you want to start out, I mean, what do parents need to know? What do providers need to know? Um, sure. So we have had the largest infusion of money for child care that I think we've ever seen as a country. So starting way back in March of, um, of last year, they passed the CARES Act, and we saw about $12 million, um, that the state received through the Child Care Development Block Grant. Um, and that's our federal block grant that um, supports child care subsidies. Um, it also uh, supports, like, the licensing and the registry um, and some other health and safety standards that the federal government requires. Um, then in December, oh, sorry, then actually statewide, we also saw $15 million, um, that the state legislature appropriated um, in June that went to support um, child care centers and child care providers. Um, then in December, we saw another $33 million through um, the Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act. And then most recently, we've had um, just about $50 million for the state for our child care development block grant. 
and also almost 80 million, which is going to be for child care stabilization grants. Um, and that would be specific to um, helping uh, family child care providers, center-based providers, um, ensure that they are able to stay open and operational um, over the next two years. Um, and then we were also hearing about um, the you know, President Biden's infrastructure plan, which uh, we're hearing is going to come out in two phases. And the first phase is going to um, talk about like infrastructure and, you know, our, our roads, bridges, you know, that kind of thing, but also including childcare in that because childcare is actually an essential part of our, you know, infrastructure as, as a community, as, as an economy. Um, and then the second part of the infrastructure um, plan would also be more direct childcare assistance for parents um, and, and, and additional support for providers and perhaps direct release to states to help um, supplement uh, ongoing programs. Um, additionally, we also saw in the American Rescue Plan, um, we saw things like the expansion of the child tax credit, which families will get, um, families who file taxes, will be able to get a higher um, tax credit than they've gotten previously. And then you'll also be able to receive some of it as like a monthly payment, which could help with child care costs. Um, and then we are also seeing um, higher child independent care um, credits that uh, families can claim on their tax returns, um, which again is to help cover like the cost of, of care. Um, and this is all really amazing, and it's it's really great because for so many families, you know, if you've had a child and you've, and you've had to pay for childcare, you know how much of your income you're spending. I mean, in in our state, the cost of childcare for infant and toddler is more than what it costs to send your child to like you know a four state you know four year um, state school, right? Including like you know room and board. Um, it's extremely expensive, and um, you know we are a state that doesn't have a paid and uh, paid family leave program, um, and so you know like we don't have that time, especially like in a you know child you know first three months of their life where somebody can take a parent can take paid time off to be with them, and so pretty much you know um, for most parents who are returning to work at two weeks until the child enters the school system, you're relying on childcare. And so what, what we can do with this federal money or what we hope that the state will do with this federal money is make these investments so that we can shore up our child care system so that, you know, our child care providers, um, the people that are, you know, doing this incredibly important work um, are not making poverty level wages. Um, it's actually one of the reasons why we see um, people not going into this area for work anymore. Um, in the same way because, you know, the pay um, is just really poor for the amount of uh, work and, you know, um, uh, the, the different qualifications that you have to have. Um, so we want to see, you know, like the, the state use some of the federal money for compensation to shore up our workforce development to help make sure that we have this kind of like care economy, you know, like in the future and, and ongoing. Um, we also um, want to make sure that um, you know, providers are able to maintain their health and safety standards in the way that they have um, uh, to make sure that, you know, the people working there and the children going there are safe, that they are able to stay healthy and, you know, hopefully continue, you know, the downward trend of colds and stomach viruses that we saw previously. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that some states are being really aspirational with how they plan to use this money. Um, uh, you know, like we're they're, they're going big, even though they know that the majority of it is, you know, um, a one-time infusion the way that it, it, it has been passed at the moment. They're still, you know, dreaming big for what they can do for this, um, for this infrastructure. 
Um, there's been a lot of attention paid to women leaving the workforce because of caregiving responsibilities and caregiving duties. Um, if we ever want our economy to, you know, get back to where it was and actually, you know, be better so that, you know, families and children can really thrive and not just, you know, like survive and, you know, making it day to day. I think that the kind of bold investment that we're seeing from the federal administration, we want to see mirrored at the state level to make sure that, um, you know, we are, uh, everyone in the care infrastructure is supported, whether you're taking care of, you know, we're talking today specifically about, you know, like child care, but also remembering, um, you know, caregiving for our kapuna um, and for, you know, like our older parents. Um, I think it's really, I think it's really uh, monumental that this infrastructure package is, is shining light on just how important childcare has always been, but it's gone unrecognized. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were saying there is no economic recovery without childcare. We still 100% believe that to be true. And you know, I was looking at the uh, Patch website, and you know, you have a, a dashboard up there, uh, Shauna, where it actually says sev- over 73% of childcare providers received pandemic-related financial financial assistance. And I'm just wondering, you know, whatever, what happened to the other uh, uh, 25%, you know, uh, do you know why maybe some of these providers didn't apply for help? Well, actually, there were a lot of funds that were coming at the same time from different places. And so our, there were a lot of child care providers that were overwhelmed with just how much funding there was and how much support. And there was some confusion among them thinking that they'd already applied for something when it was something that was different. Like if they had applied for island-specific funds, they thought it was for federal funds or different funding sources. They all thought it was one and the same. So that that was something that we were working with a lot of the providers on. We had made all of the different islands, we made cheat sheets and mailed those out and emailed them to providers to let them know there are multiple sources of funding. So we, we were getting a lot of calls with, with providers that were just overwhelmed and confused on what to apply for, and they thought they'd already applied. So we, we were supporting them and helping them with how to find different applications, how to fill them out. And so... That, that's where that gap came in, is some of them already thought they had applied or some of them didn't apply at all or didn't finish the paperwork. So there, there were just a little bit of confusion on that with just how much was available and how many different sources they were coming from. So hopefully then we can clear that up for them so, you know, while there is more money available that exactly. we can't just leave it sitting in uh, in a bank account somewhere uh, if it's going to help them survive and and provide care for the communities that they serve. And uh, uh, Megan, if you can talk about the loss of of bodies, of little bodies. I mean, not everybody's returned to the classroom. Uh, you know, uh, tell us where where you've got vacancies uh, here on Oahu. Thanks so much. Yeah. So for a while, they were operating at about you know very low capacity, and and right now we're about 60, 70 percent capacity. Um, we are we have long wait lists at our downtown location right next to City Hall. It's called the Early Education Center. Um, so in fact, there we have the interesting problem of not having enough space for students that want to come to us. So um, you know we are always looking for new facilities to possibly provide more spaces for those children who need it um, because they want to access our affordable, high-quality childcare program. Uh, same thing in Kailua where we have a small center. Um, 
But the west side, we have three locations there in Kapolei, Eva Beach, and Ko'olina just reopened yesterday. So um, that one is really dependent, of course, on the resort property, and a lot of folks who work there um, obviously attend that location. So um, the, on that side of the island, people have been much slower to return. Um, but we anticipate uh, those enrollment numbers to go back up in the coming months, especially as the vaccine rolls out and things like that impact enrollment. So do you think the parents are just having a tough time financially and, and are choosing if they get some help that the money is going to go somewhere else and not toward childcare? Yes, I do. I think, I think families have to prioritize and where you can find childcare or people at home to watch your children, as you mentioned earlier, people are going to do that. I mean, they had to figure it out during the lockdown. And so a lot of them continued um, with whatever situation um, they found you know, convenient for them, especially if the DOE uh, school for their other ch children was closed. So that certainly was the case. I think well, another thing is a lot of people, a lot of our families are still waiting to go back to work. Uh, and once they do, they fully intend to re rejoin the program. So we get a lot of parents asking us, you know, hey, can I rejoin in the summer? Uh, what about September? You know, they're just waiting for the callback to go back to work. And as I mentioned before, that's, um, that's ex you know, especially the case out in Coalina where, um, you know, it's the travel industry, um, the hotels there have just reopened, that has a big impact as well. So um, I think for a lot of families, it's really just an issue of returning to work, prioritizing finances, as you mentioned, and, and that's really it. And then some of it's still safety and security. Uh, but we've been able to handle that communication, a lot of it virtually. So whereas a lot of parents still have concerns about their children's health and, health and safety and returning to in-person learning, you know, we've been able to combat that with you know, here's what we're doing um, and doing virtual tours for parents, even though we have a policy where parents can't come onto campus now. Um, we do offer those virtual tours and things so that they get a real sense of what they can expect um, their children's learning environment to be like once they return. And Kathleen, can you talk about maybe, you know, what your survey has shown when it comes to what parents and families are worried about as they start to return to work? Um, I, I think that um, I think that parents and guardians, you know, families are kind of like they're they're facing some tough decisions about wanting, you know, like wanting kids to have that sense of normalcy and return to, you know, like school and cities programs because, you know, I know, you know, for my for my own kids, you know, my my four year old, um, when his childcare center was closed, you know, he he really missed it. He missed his friends. Um, he was seeing it. I was, you know, my husband and I were working full time, and and so we're not able to be attentive to his needs. Um, and after, you know, a month of it, our house was in was in duress. Um, so I was very happy when our center opened back up, and he was able to go back and see his friends. But it was also a, a risk, like or, or not a risk, but understanding what the risk was. Um, you know, uh, and then you know, as Megan shared, seeing the precautions that places were taking and understanding, you know, like um, the risk management um, and the seriousness in which they were really implementing these new standards and guidelines. You know, that is what gave me peace of mind. But I understand that you know every family situation is different. Um, uh, we've also been seeing from our parents that they are concerned about the children's, you know, like mental health and emotional health. Um, you know, it's been, it's, you know, like for some of our school-age kids, it's, it's been a long time that they've been without their peers. And, you know, the um, on-screen interaction, it, it, isn't, it isn't the same for them. And so um, I think that it's trying to balance all of that, the needs of their children, the concerns that they have, and, 
um, you know, with the information that they're given. And so I think that, you know, where parents, if, if they're unsure, I think reaching out to programs and asking the questions of what are you doing and how are you mitigating the risk? Um, have you had any, you know, like, um, have you had any issues? I think it can, can provide some peace of mind um, because we do know that, uh, you know, health and safety continually since the beginning of the pandemic has been the number one concern um, that parents have had about sending their children back to care. And I think a lot of employers have tried to be you know, very accommodating and understanding because it is hard when you're when you're at home and you're trying to manage the kids' education and, and, and do your work at the same time. Uh, it's tough. It's really tough. I mean, I remember um, I was thinking, you know, when my kids were little that, that it was a break for me to go to work. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm just wondering, you know, what the uh, – what providers are, are seeing out there, you know, do they, are they, do they fear that their employers might not be so flexible once everybody gets vaccinated and they want everybody back in the office? Uh, Shauna, what do you think? Everything is just so, it just keeps fluctuating and everything is just so up in the air. It's, it's just that waiting game and trying to to figure everything out but i think that is a concern you know and especially with um here at least on the big island we we've been trying to support our providers and especially our centers getting up and back on their feet um, i don't think there's many centers that are at capacity because of the social distancing mandate and we did have a grant that we did have CARES grant funds, and it did help to um, expand the child care space to comply with social distancing, and they did buy plexiglass and a whole bunch of different um, portable sinks and things to space it out. And um, we've seen more um, schools opening up to more teachers that have been, that have been, um, uh, I lost my word, <laughs> that have been not let go, but mm. they didn't have the capacity to have that additional teacher. But they're now being able to bring them back into the classroom as more students are starting to come back, as more things open up and parents are going back to work. So that has definitely been a concern, and I'm not really sure how to address that. And Megan, uh, I don't know if you have some employees who also have little ones in the school. I, I don't know. How does that work? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, they're our greatest ambassadors for the program, actually, in returning to in-person learning because um, they did it with their own little ones. So um, both directors and teachers at a lot of our center locations have their own children in the program. So um, it works for them, you know, because they're able to bring their children to work, so to speak. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I think that uh, our situation is slightly different from what Shauna just mentioned, you know. Our, our core staff, our regular teaching staff, you know, we need all of them in the classroom just to make up these ratios and to allow these small bubbles in the classroom, these smaller ratio of children, uh, teacher to student ratio to happen. And um, what I worry about more is the fact that we don't have enough substitute staffing uh, to give relief to teachers that are doing this day in, day out without any rest, you know, um, and all the extra work that is on our staff to make sure that we are meeting um, the highest standards of, of you know, 
safety and, and cleanliness and all of that. And they're doing a fantastic job. But I just, you know, I wish that there was a greater um, maybe substitute workforce out there for, um, you know, there really is no pipeline for um, providers to really uh, find available staff who are qualified to come in and maybe substitute or just help out in the classrooms when it's needed. And, you know, we have, gosh, I think just like two weeks left of the legislative session. I don't know what bills there are out there uh, that would help uh, boost early education. Kathleen? Um, so there is, um, there is a bill, um, there are a couple of bills that would create this early educator stipend program. It, it is more targeted, though, towards like preschool-aged children. Um, but that is a hope. Um, that is something that we hope the state will take on, even if it isn't through legislation. And it's, you know, something that DHS does on its own where, you know, workforce development and having, you know, like people in the pipeline, as Megan said, to make sure that, um, you know, like we can continue to expand our child care. I think it's important to note that, you know, pre-pandemic, we did not have enough spaces. We have never actually had enough spaces to meet the need. Um, if you had an infant and toddler, um, you know, like you were fighting for one space with 37 other, infant, you know, infants and toddlers. And so this has been an ongoing problem um, in Hawaii. And so I think if this is the time with this infusion of federal money to really, you know, develop that workforce and make sure that, you know, people are being compensated in a way that, that brings them and incentivizes them to come and to stay um, in, in this career. And I just want to add one, one thing about, um, you know, uh, working parents and working from home and having your children. Um, this has been, uh, the CARES Act had it, uh, it was mandatory, the um, American Rescue Plan made it um, optional for employers, but the paid leave um, because of childcare and school closures is still available. Um, parents uh, still have that option. Um, it is a tax credit that employers get, but it, it, it does allow for parents to um, take time off and care for children who would otherwise be in a child care center or, you know, like in a school, but that is currently doing distance learning or has been closed because of the pandemic. And, you know, uh, correct me if I'm, wrong, if I'm wrong, but I believe lawmakers did pass, was it Act 46? And, and that's what a goal to make sure that what three and four year olds have access to a preschool program by 2032, I think. Um, uh, you yes. know, what are your thoughts on, on that and whether this pandemic is going to set us back? So I think, um, so yeah, so Act 46 that was passed last, last year um, has the goal of, you know, all threes and fours being, uh, having access to an early learning program um, by 2032. I think that we were a little bit concerned that the pandemic would, you know, hinder that. We did see originally that it was for 2030. We did see like a two-year setback because of everything um, and the, um, there's actually like a follow-up bill this year just to help like clean up some of the timelines. And it, it you know, like it, it is moving forward. Um, I think that that's really great that, you know, through, we're taking this step for expansion for threes and fours. Um, I just think that, you know, like it's important to remember that, um, you know, that infant and toddler is where we have the least amount of care and it's the most expensive. And so we want to make sure that, you know, like as we're incentivizing, you know, um, providers and centers and programs, to expand to threes and fours, that we're not disincentivizing, you know, um, people to move away from infant and toddler because we don't have the same support. So we, we would really like to see this continuum of support, you know, from zero, um, you know, like all the way through our after school and summer learning programs to make sure that children have, you know, a safe, um, uh, safe nurturing place for them to go um, so that parents are able to, you know, um, participate in the workforce and have their 
their needs met. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left. Um, we can just go around the, the table. Uh, any final thoughts? Anything that you want to underscore out there to parents or families who have little ones? Uh, Megan? Well, I just want to thank everybody on the panel for articulating the issues so well, both the systemic issues that are challenging childcare right now, and and of course I can I can speak from the provider level. Um, you know, I just want to say that um, you know it is possible to return to in-person learning. Um, we're providing a very safe and effective learning program um, amidst this pandemic, and we and we think it'll continue to. You know, the conditions for providing that education are going to continue to improve over time. So. Um, you know, I'm just incredibly grateful to our partners um, on this call and to our partners in the community who have helped us out with funding. You know, uh, we talked about funding and, and grant opportunities. Um, we have a very small staff, but this has become another big part of our job, right? This is something that we focus on every day. So we're so grateful for the support, and we're very grateful to our families for continuing to entrust us with the education of their children at this All right. age. Thank you so much. And Shauna, you got about a minute? Um, Basically, just want to re-emphasize, you know, just working to have enough spaces for all the children. And if parents or guardians need or are looking for childcare, they can always give Patch a call, and we can work on a referral with them to get them um, licensed childcare providers in the area that they're looking for, as well as any resources that they might need. And um, just if anyone needs any support within the early childhood realm to give Patch a call, and we can either, if we can't get them what they need, we can always make sure that we can put them into whoever would be able to support them. Well, I know I've used Patch uh, when I my, my children were little, and uh, they were a godsend. So thank you for what you do. Uh, Kathleen? Um, yeah, so thank you again for, like, having this conversation. I think it's really important that you know, um, all of our committee members understand the importance of child care, you know, that it isn't just for the families that need it in that moment, that they're being impacted by it, that, you know, like child care really does allow our economy and our, our communities to function and, and we need it to thrive. And so I think that, you know, in the future, we should really be moving towards seeing child care as a community good rather than individual responsibility. And, you know, to borrow the line, build back better, that's exactly what we should be doing in the next couple of years. Let's make sure that all of our child, all of our kids have, you know, like a safe nurturing place to go, that our providers and our caregivers are paid, you know, uh, compensated in a fair way for the work that they're doing and the ded dedication that they bring every single day. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, like, so that our community is better. Absolutely. Hanaho. Well, we'd like to thank our guests, Kathleen Algar from the Hawaii Children's Action Network, Shana Delima Suganuma with Patch Hawaii, and Megan McCorriston of Seagull Schools. And we thank you, the listener, for joining us on today's show. What do you think of today's discussion? Contact the Talkback line and leave your comments. Call 808-792-8217. Uh, you can also send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.